listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. Today, we're going to continue our series, Follow the Leader. It's a series where we go through the Bible looking at various leaders and contrast them, for the most part, with Jesus. Last week we started with Pharaoh, and we saw the ways in which Pharaoh really set the stage not just for the leaders of Egypt, but really the leaders for all of the stories, and the ways in which the prophets offered an alternative story, and how Jesus followed the narrative of the prophets, not the narrative of Pharaoh. Today, we're going to look at Jesus and contrast him with Herod the Great. So there are lots of Herods that are mentioned in the New Testament. Herod the Great, the one we're focusing on today, is only mentioned in the nativity stories of Jesus. He's the one that the Magi visited in Matthew, and he's the one who tried to have Jesus killed. He had the babies uh, slaughtered in Bethlehem. In fact, Herod the Great died about the same time that Jesus was born, probably within a year of each other. The other Herods that do get mentioned in the New Testament are his descendants. There is a Herod Antipas, who is the ruler of Galilee and Perea at the time of Jesus's adulthood. One of his uh, siblings, a man that went by Herod Philip, was the leader of another area where Caesarea Philippi was. He named that city for himself. There were later leaders, also descendants of Herod the Great. One of his grandsons, Herod Agrippa, uh, had James, the son of Zebedee, put to death in Acts. And then his son, Herod Agrippa II, uh, heard Paul's uh, testimony when Paul was in prison in Caesarea. So this Herod the Great character, we can see he had a pretty, pretty big impact on his family his sons and grandsons and even great-grandsons kind of bore his name. But more than that, he had an impact on, on Jewish life and culture. He was the king of the Jews uh, for a long period of time. He ruled for 34 years, and he was quite well-known throughout the Roman Empire. He had been educated in Rome, and Octavius, Caesar Augustus, uh, actually said it would be better to be Herod's pigs than his sons. It's because Herod was known for being quite ruthless and holding on to power, uh, so much so that he did have two of his sons executed. Often when I hear Herod discussed, we typically go there. We talk about how he was kind of crazy with power. But if we were to back up a bit and take, take a look at him, he really was a pretty successful leader. The As I said, the death of Herod the Great and the birth of Jesus happened fairly close to the same time and even closer in terms of distance. We know that Herod was uh, buried at this place called Herodium. Uh, It's one of the palaces that he'd built for himself. We'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. But with a lot of fanfare, like when Herod died, it was national news. About three miles from Herodium, in a little village of Bethlehem, Jesus was born without hardly any fanfare. I mean, a few shepherds, I guess, heard about it the night of, 
And within several months, maybe a year, the Magi came to visit, but not a lot. So no, it's not like the birth of Jesus was kind of broadcast nationally. The death of Herod definitely was. Um, of course, the irony of that is, is that today the name Jesus and the title Jesus Christ, of course, has affected uh, cultures around the world. It has affected history. Like, like the birth of Jesus is like the most significant event in human history. And the death of Herod is, for the most part, pretty much forgotten. So these, these two places, these two people, um, had very different kind of approaches to leadership. Uh, Herod was a master leader, really. I mean, he was able, in a time where there was a dominant culture, uh, the Romans, and even before the Romans, the Greeks, that had kind of taken over the whole Mediterranean basin. And he was able to kind of negotiate all that. Herod was not particularly a religious man. His father was Nabataean and his mother was Jewish. And so um, in order to kind of hold all of those kind of disparate groups together, he was able to kind of knit together a culture that was both kind of pro-Greek and Roman, but also uh, was, had a way of kind of making room for a variety of, of Judaisms. Um, the plurality which, which he led is, is really quite impressive. I mean, he built a lot of infrastructure. There are roads and theaters and amphitheaters and hippodromes and palaces and fortresses and aqueducts that, that he's responsible for. And his, his biggest building project was the refurbishment of the temple, the temple that you know, Solomon had built but had been destroyed. A second temple had been built by Zerubbabel, but it was not very impressive. But what Herod did was not just kind of refurbish Zerubbabel's temple, but it really surpassed um, Solomon's temple. It was one of the most magnificent building projects of the ancient world. So Herod really was getting it done. Again, he ruled for 34 years. That's a long time. And he was able to hold together kind of the, the different groups, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Zealots. There was a group that's kind of known as the Herodians, those who kind of followed Herod and like appreciated him and his ability to kind of to lead. So by a lot of the ways, a lot of the measurements that we might say Mark's a good leader, Herod would have, would have fit those. Uh, certainly, if we just look at his results, there were a lot of positive results uh, during his time. And Jesus, of course, could have, uh, have kind of picked up on that. Like, like when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, his dream is like Herod's, having a kingdom, but even more grandiose, right? Jesus' dream is that in Palestine, there would start this, this small group that would eventually become the representation of humanity on the planet. But Jesus doesn't follow Herod. Jesus follows a very different pattern. I might say, we said this last week, but it, it bears repeating that we're really leaning quite heavily into a teaching that Eugene Peterson did a number of years ago, also called Follow the Leader. 
And a lot of these observations are observations that Peterson kind of uh, brought to my attention. So Jesus starts his ministry in a small town. In fact, it's hardly a town. It's really just a little village. Uh, the name of it was Capernaum. And it was just a small little nexus of, of buildings that were all attached to each other. Just think like a, like a, like a medium-sized apartment complex. And all the different families of the villages lived there. And you know, if you had a kid, you just add on a room, right? Not, not when the kid was little, but you'd, when the kid grew up and got married, you kind of add on a room. And then somebody else is out of room. So it's all just kind of families and extended families. And there are a couple of other little villages nearby, Chorazin and Bethesda. And the three of them formed this little nexus. But it was, there was no really political significance of these places. They were small. They were, they were places where everybody knew everybody. And the most significant building in the village would have been the synagogue. And so each little place had its synagogue, its place where people would come together and pray and hear scripture read and kind of tell the stories of, of God and, and their ancestors and such. That is such a different approach than Herod, who was a builder, right? There were cities that, that were in the area, I mean, Jesus was born in Nazareth, which is not that far from, from Capernaum, where his, his adult kind of public ministry was located. And Nazareth was another very small village. I mean, it's really not even on the map. Like, there's no reference to Nazareth in the Old Testament or in the Mishnah or in the Talmuds or in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, Nazareth is just a really, really small place, like a wide spot in the road. But, but Nazareth was not that far from a city of Sepphoris. So Sepphoris was a big city in Galilee, and there was one other city in Galilee. It was Tiberias, which is still a city in Galilee, about 50 or 60,000 people. But there's not a single mention of those places in the gospel stories. Like, Jesus was around those big cities. Jesus was by those, those aqueducts and would have walked on those roads and would have gone past those theaters and those amphitheaters. He would have been familiar with with the kind of fortresses at Caesarea. He, he knew of Herod, obviously, but he seems to be not necessarily oblivious to it, but certainly ignoring it. It's not, it's not his, his main mode of operation. He's, he's not there to kind of build that way. So, I mean, perhaps we might think or suggest that he's just differentiating himself from Herod. But I think in a lot of examples throughout Christian history, instead of differentiating ourselves from kind of successful ways of leadership that we see around us in the world, we try to adopt them, to kind of baptize them. We, we mimic them. Uh, a lot of times I see kind of Christians kind of mimic military kind of images and symbols, uh, kind of like the Salvation Army, perhaps, you know, they wear uniforms or the, the language that denominations use for their senior leaders, the general overseer or the general superintendent. We use a lot of kind of embattlement language. Or more recently, it's not so much the military that we borrow our metaphors from, but business. We talk about business principles and about kind of customer service. We, we are more apt to talk about 
recruitment and development than we are to talk about evangelism and discipleship. So Jesus could have done that. He could have seen that Herod the Great was a very successful leader by a lot of measurements, and he could have just said, well, maybe I'll just provide some morality, and while Herod was kind of secular, I'll just take his success, his establishment of the kingdom, and I'll make it religious. But that's not what he did. He did something, some, something kind of completely different. There were other examples of, of kind of leadership that he could have picked up on as well, not kind of the, the government uh, development and kingdom building of Herod, but the other kind of major option that Peter, uh, excuse me, that Jesus had in his time was, was that of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are often in the Gospels kind of the adversaries of Jesus, and so therefore they typically get a pretty bad rap. But the history of the Pharisees kind of shows us something that might give us some, some cause for pause, that we might not be too quick to kind of judge them so harshly. Like one of the reasons I believe that, that Jesus is, we often see Jesus at odds with the Pharisees, is because he's having to very carefully differentiate his message from theirs. It's because Jesus, is, wouldn't, the way he behaved certainly would not get him kind of confused with Herod. But the way he was behaving could have gotten him confused with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were teachers and he was a teacher. The Pharisees had disciples and he had disciples. The Pharisees kind of taught in synagogues and he taught in synagogues, right? So Jesus is definitely kind of in that realm, but he's needing to kind of differentiate himself from them. But to give the Pharisees their due a bit, kind of prior to Herod, the, and even prior to the, the Romans, of which Herod was definitely an evangelist for, the Greeks had been such the evangelists for their culture, for, for, for civilization as they understood it, um, uh, academics and art and architecture and government and, and military and roads and such, that the Greeks felt like there was no other way really to be a flourishing human than to do it the Greek way. And they really did kind of take over that whole Mediterranean world, Southern Europe, Northern Africa, and into what we would call today the Middle East. And the Jews were one of the few groups that really bucked that. They, they, they resisted the Hellenization, at least in a lot of ways, a lot of them did. And they resisted it because it was just too anthropocentric. It, it, was, it was too centered on the human and what the human could do, what human culture could do. And for them, that was just idolatrous, that it was God's, this is God's place. We are God's people and God is the primary subject and God is the primary actor. And so what the Pharisees were doing, the word Pharisee actually just means separated ones. And so they were going to be separate from that dominant Greek culture, and then later separate from the dominant Roman culture. And so there's a lot of ways in which Christianity is, of course, practiced that way. The problem is, is that the Pharisees, while they started off, I think, with a very kind of righteous plan, and 
uh, kind of good-hearted intentions, how you kind of, from generation to generation, practice that kind of tradition keeping can be quite precarious. So to kind of lean on uh, Peterson again, he, he tells this, this story. He says, imagine you kind of uh, are able to acquire this wonderful lodge kind of out in the, in the mountains. And you have this beautiful kind of picturesque uh, window that looks over a lake with the kind of mountains in the background. And it is such a wonderful kind of peaceful place to be. So you're sitting there and you're kind of gazing through the window. And as you're doing so, you know, a bird dropping kind of falls on it. And you're like, oh, I got to clean that off. And so immediately you get out a bucket and some water and you go outside and you get it clean. But then you realize, well, wait a minute, there's some kind of streaks that are on here. So you get out some more equipment and you make sure it's clean. And then it rains really hard and, and some of your cleaning materials kind of mix with the rain in different ways and it has some more smudges. And so you're just working and working and working and eventually you're getting more buckets and more squeegees and some scaffolding both inside and out. And all of your attention is on kind of keeping the window clean so much so that you might even kind of hang a curtain around it. And we forget that the window was not the point. We were to gaze through the window to, to look at something else. And in some ways that expresses that kind of religious um, misadventure, kind of getting off track. It's what this parable that we listened to earlier about the fire and the fence is all about. That our experience with God is, is personal and it involves real relationships with one another. And it's not something that can just be manufactured. Like we can do our best to kind of pass it along, to put up some signposts and to build some fences to kind of protect us. And if our fences fail, you know, those, those posts that used to be there can become kind of guard shacks. But, but that's the problem. I mean, Jesus could have very easily kind of leaned into kind of the Pharisees' reputation as teachers and as keepers of the tradition. But they were missing it. So Jesus offers us something else. It's not... It's not the power and success um, of Herod. And it's not the separatism and pietism and morality police of the Pharisees. Instead, what we get with Jesus is really what we got with Mary. I mean, at the beginning of, of Luke's gospel, we see when Mary comes uh, and she's, an angel comes to Mary and says, you know, you're, you're going to have a baby and it, your baby is going to be, uh, be, be God, right? That's how it's going to happen. Mary kind of identifies herself as a slave, right? I'm a, I'm a maidservant of God. Let it, let it be unto me. You, I have to think that when Jesus was taught to pray, which certainly his parents would have taught him to do so, of course, they would, have, they would have taught him like, like all Jews were kind of taught through their prayer book, the Psalms, that the Psalms were, 
were, were, were prayers and songs to be read and sung, and they represent kind of the full gambit of life, the, the rejoicing and, and the order that we see, the lament and the sorrow and the disorder, and all of that kind of reorientation that, that we hold on to, like the promise of newness, of, of, of resurrection, we would say, as Christians. But when we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we hear him pray, Father, not my will, but yours. We see in Jesus those same two movements that I, see, I think we see in Mary. We see both the, the kind of the submission, right? Father, and, and the submission that she had, I'm but your maid servant. And we, and we also see the, the, the abandonment, you know, not my will be yours, is very much like saying, I, I'm the maidservant, you're God, let it be. Her let it be is much like his, not my will, but yours. And it is a submission and an abandonment to God. And that so kind of marks, marks the way in which, the Jesus way in which we live. There are two passages of scripture that I want us to listen to. Um, and I want us, we're going to kind of string them together. The first one is our gospel passage today. And again, it's from Matthew chapter 16. And, and we're going to hear um, Jesus speaking. And he's going to be saying things like, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. This is right on the heels of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. And he's saying, okay, now, I'm glad you got that right, but let me tell you what that means, because it's not what you think it means, right? It's not establishing a kingdom like Herod, and it's not establishing some separate kind of uh, um, religious group like the Pharisees. It is a fully uh, robust, engaged way of being a human with one another in this world, and it's it's not just the, the 50,000 foot view, it's going to be practiced in these little villages and around these meeting houses of worship. This is my way of doing things. And after, after the gospel passage, we're going to hear this passage from Romans. And it's, it's the Apostle Paul speaking, but it is very much the same message of Jesus about how we should behave. And it's a way, again, that is distinguishable from either Herod or the Pharisees. So let's listen to these, to these two passages of Scripture. Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. 
For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay every one for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What powerful words from Matthew's gospel and from Paul's letter to the Romans. From the very kind of mouth of Jesus and from one of our kind of treasured early leaders in the Apostle Paul. If we can live these words, we will really be following the leader. I do, before we wrap up, I, I would just like to kind of circle back around so that uh, I want to be clear on this particular thing. When Jesus chose Capernaum to be his, his headquarters for his ministry, where he chose to live and that kind of place, a small place like that where everyone's name could be known and relationships could be authentic and real, and a place where the synagogue was such a, a prominent um, piece of their culture. I think holding those two things together is the best way we can practice the community of faith. Like, we do need to know each other. It's why small groups and care groups and volunteering in the church is important. It's not just because these are things you need to get done, right? So you can check them off. Like, I read my Bible, I said my prayer, I visited the widow, I cared for the orphan. I mean, all of those are great things, of course, but it matters because it's shaping who we are. It's living the faith. The faith is participatory and it's personal. And obviously that meant something to Jesus. I mean, he didn't just go to the big cities and try and draw in the big crowds and set up the, the huge structure and infrastructure. That wasn't his way. And so if we're going to follow our leader as opposed to just be leaders, that I, I really think following the way of Jesus is doing just that, having personal, authentic relationships with families and friends 
around our commitment to God and to one another. That's what I think it means to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow him. That's what I think it means to rejoice and to pray and to live at peace with all people as far as we can. And I know our culture is really kind of driving us in the other direction. It wants us to to kind of uh, victimize ourselves and vilify the other, uh, particularly in terms of kind of politics these days and everything that seems to be politicized. But if, if we can just kind of resist that temptation, resist the temptation to either be like Herod or be like the Pharisees and just lean in to being like Jesus because he is our leader. Amen. Amen. I love you all. God bless. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes. And if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.